Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks, Pete. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Okay, so today we have an episode for you on an area of controversy in the field of shoulder surgery, and that is thoracic outlet syndrome. This is a syndrome that, for many shoulder surgeons, remains poorly understood. So to elucidate, I've invited Dr. Robert Thompson. Dr. Thompson is a vascular surgeon at Washington University in St. Louis and is a nationally recognized expert on this subject. Dr. Thompson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Pete. Great to be here. Well, we're really glad to have you. So let's start at the beginning. How, how would you define this condition, thoracic outlet syndrome? Well, in general, uh, thoracic outlet syndrome or syndromes uh, relate to uh, conditions of extrinsic compression of nerves or blood vessels that transit the thoracic outlet, the area in the base of the neck uh, behind the clavicle, and extending down to the front part of the shoulder. We really emphasize that there are three types of thoracic outlet syndrome, depending on what structure is compressed. That can be neurogenic, where the brachial plexus nerves are compressed. It can be venous, where the subclavian vein is compressed, or arterial TOS, where the subclavian artery is compressed. And what are the most common patient complaints uh, for, for our shoulder and elbow listeners to be able to understand? And then on top of that, what are some of the atypical symptoms that patients might come in complaining of? Well, when we think of the most frequent form of thoracic outlet syndrome, that's neurogenic TOS. The main complaints uh, in general are pain, numbness, and tingling. The pain can be uh, in the base of the neck, extending to the shoulder, to the upper back, and uh, often down into the arm and even to the hand. The paresthesias often involve the arm and the hand, and importantly, uh, frequently involve all the fingers of the hand, so they don't follow a, a single peripheral nerve distribution. The uh, second most common form of TOS is venous TOS, and the clinical presentation there is quite distinct, where patients present with sudden spontaneous onset of arm swelling, usually quite substantial swelling two to three times normal, involving the entire extremity, and that's due to subclavian vein thrombosis. The less frequent, uh, in fact rare, patients with arterial TOS can have thromboembolic complications affecting the arterial supply to the arm or the hand, so they may present with an ischemic hand. And that's due to embolism from a subclavian artery aneurysm, which is the hallmark of arterial thoracic outlet syndrome. Now, you've mentioned these as three separate conditions as though they are non-overlapping. Is it your experience that there's frequently overlap between these three? Well, I think you can usually distinguish a patient as having predominantly one of the three types, uh, but there is some overlap. For example, a patient with arterial TOS due to 
a uh, cervical rib and a subclavian aneurysm, may have neurogenic symptoms as well. And uh, sometimes they don't have any arterial symptoms, even if there's an aneurysm present. That might be only identified during imaging uh, in evaluating the neurogenic symptoms. We do occasionally see patients with venous TOS who develop secondary neurogenic symptoms if they've had long-standing uh, subclavian vein thrombosis. Can I ask you another question about this? the complaints? Now, you mentioned this sudden-onset subclavian vein where the, the vein thrombosis. Has it been your, you know, the, the, this is an anatomic syndrome, so it's related to the patient's anatomy. Has it been your experience that most patients will say, I've had these symptoms for as long as I can remember? Or is it often true that patients will say there's an injury? What is the usual time course with this condition? Well, venous TOS is interesting because it presents as a sudden acute onset of arm swelling. And that reflects the uh, recent thrombosis of the subclavian vein. What we know now uh, is that that's probably a reflection of chronic intermittent compression of the vein with injury and a repetitive nature uh, that scars and narrows the vein and then eventually leads to thrombosis. But the actual pathophysiology probably goes back quite a bit before the actual symptomatic uh, presentation. In neurogenic TOS, patients can present with longstanding symptoms, uh, pain, numbness, and tingling. And those may have gone on, in fact, for uh, many months to years uh, before they uh, are identified as potentially having TOS and, and get referred. Now, you mentioned with neurogenic that there's these two features. There's this pain, and then there's also distal paresthesias. Is it been your experience that sometimes there's only one or the other? And then obviously, uh, the, the thing that I think is critical for our listeners is, you know, we see patients frequently in our clinics with shoulder pain. Is there particular features of this pain that may allow us to distinguish it from, say, the patient who has a rotator cuff tear or a labral tear or some other shoulder-based pathology? Yeah, that's often a difficult problem to separate out. Um, we do rely on uh, the previous evaluations a patient has had, perhaps before TOS was suspected. So if uh, there is shoulder pain, they've usually had imaging and evaluation for that. Uh, and we sometimes consider TOS to be a diagnosis of exclusion, where we've had a shoulder expert evaluate the patient, and they've said that the symptoms really can't be attributable to the shoulder. And then uh, we look for pain that may involve the shoulder, but it usually involves the neck extending into the upper back and down the arm. And the paresthesias are valuable because they indicate a neural source of the symptoms. We do a number of things on physical evaluation to try and separate that out. So localizing tenderness in the base of the neck over the clavicle is very valuable. Uh, that indicates a scaling triangle compression of the brachial plexus. There may also be localizing tenderness over the pectoralis minor tendon, just below the clavicle uh, more laterally. 
Then the last thing that's important is the provocative maneuvers. Most patients with neurogenic TOS will describe substantial aggravation of symptoms with arm elevation. Uh, we use the upper limb tension test to identify neural symptoms with the arms elevated at 90 degrees and the three-minute elevated arm stress test uh, to determine if uh, there are other findings aggravated by arm elevation and exercise. Dr. Thompson, what are the most common physical, excuse me, uh, imaging studies? You just mentioned physical exam, but how do you tie in your imaging studies to evaluating these patients? And what do they usually come in with? And then what do you end up ordering? Well, when we get a referral for neurogenic TOS, um, we do like to have cervical spine imaging already performed uh, to help rule out a cervical spine source. And uh, we usually will recommend that they have had upper extremity electrodiagnostic testing. And that can help rule out a isolated peripheral nerve compression syndrome or a brachial plexopathy. Uh, that may be unrelated to uh, thoracic outlet syndrome. So we do screening in that sense. Um, in terms of specific imaging of the thoracic outlet, there are folks who describe brachial plexus uh, MRI studies uh, as a way to try and positively identify patients with TOS. But it, those studies are really quite nonspecific, and often they come back as normal. Um, even in a patient with very clear-cut clinical findings consistent with neurogenic TOS. So I have to admit we haven't really identified specific imaging studies that help us make the diagnosis, and there are really none that can exclude TOS completely. So if, if there's no imaging study that kind of clinches the diagnosis, are there frequently patients you diagnosis with based solely on the absence of anything else on your shoulder MRI or cervical MRI or EMG, the patient's history and their physical examination? Like, is that a, that's the usual process for you is when you have those things lined up, you can give the patient this diagnosis? Yes. Um, we really consider it a clinical diagnosis, um, but it's also based on exclusion of other conditions that might produce overlapping or similar symptoms. Um, the other valuable tool in some patients, I don't think it's necessary in most, uh, but in some patients we do use a scalene muscle anesthetic block. Uh, if that patient has particularly symptoms at rest, uh, then a scalene muscle block that alleviates symptoms for a period of four to six hours or so is very strong supportive evidence for the presence of neurogenic TOS. The problem that we've seen is that negative blocks don't mean a lot. And you can still have a strong clinical diagnosis with a negative scaling muscle block. So you would say that test is maybe sensitive or specific but insensitive? Right. Okay. One setting that, that may be particularly relevant uh, with uh, scaling muscle blocks is in athletes. Um, 
where the symptoms may be primarily with exercise, for example, a baseball pitcher may be able to throw perfectly well for about 20, 25 pitches, but then gets profound fatigue, pain, numbness, and tingling and has to stop. In that patient, uh, the physical exam may actually be pretty minimal. And uh, you're still left with a, a diagnostic dilemma. So like others, we have used scaling muscle blocks and then having the patient go out and try and throw to see if that alters the uh, symptoms. And if so, then you've got good evidence that that's actually what's driving the limitations. Okay, so let's say you've confirmed the diagnosis, but the patient hasn't had any treatment. What is usually the first step for you in conservative treatment? Uh, pretty much everybody, we would recommend a, a specific treatment trial of physical therapy uh, that is specific to TOS, a little bit different than what one does for the shoulder or for the neck, for example. Most of it is re reliant on stretching and relaxing the scalene and pec minor muscles rather than strengthening. And uh, we would do that for at least an eight-week period uh, and assess uh, what impact that may or may not have had on symptoms. We also would recommend anti-inflammatory agents, muscle relaxants, and in some patients with particularly pronounced neurogenic symptoms, then we might also recommend uh, gabapentin or Lyrica as a, another way to control symptoms. And all those patients would also have restrictions during the physical therapy trial uh, to avoid overhead activity with the arm or lifting more than five to 10 pounds. How effective have you found that physical therapy? I mean, what percentage of patients respond to it? And when they do respond, how complete is the relief? Well, I'd have to say from our perspective, we have a very specific referral practice. So we're seeing patients with pretty advanced symptoms. And uh, I would say that 80% uh, of them have either had physical therapy or when we try it, don't respond. So uh, the majority of patients that we see in, in our kind of practice are typically candidates for the next step of treatment, which would be surgical decompression. I think in general, um, patients with milder symptoms, uh, not so long-standing, may respond quite well to physical therapy. For those patients who need surgery, need an intervention at this point, which in your practice obviously is a lot of them, what, what does that surgery look like for you? Is there a single surgery that you go to? Is it a rib resection, um, other procedures that you do? And then when you do those procedures, are they inpatient? Are they outpatient? How do patients rehab? And, and what do you expect in terms of a full recovery? Well, our approach has been um, pretty solidly to use a supraclavicular approach to thoracic outlet decompression. Um, and through the incision above the collarbone, we get excellent exposure of the relevant anatomy particularly around the scalene triangle. And so the operation involves removal of the anterior scalene and middle scalene muscles, the first rib, 
uh, and scar tissue from around the nerves. Uh, in the vast majority of patients, we also include a pectoralis minor tenotomy through a separate deltopectoral groove incision. And it is an inpatient procedure where patients will be in the hospital on an average of four or five days after surgery. We resume physical therapy as they recover about three to four weeks after the operation with a gradual increase in activity and hope that by the two to three months post-operative time point, patients are back to resuming pretty regular activity with the arm. But I have to admit that varies widely because we see patients with such a wide spectrum of degrees of disability prior to surgery. Now, it sounds like then for maybe longer lasting neurologic symptoms preoperatively, you would tell the patient then that it's going to take a longer time probably to have alleviation of those symptoms. Is that what is that what you is that what you say? Yeah, we do. We we really say it it's hard to predict uh the trajectory of recovery that any individual patient might have. Um some may be largely recovered and free of symptoms or have minimized symptoms by three months. Some may still have long-standing symptoms uh, for six months, even to a year. You know, for we as surgeons, if we're gonna refer someone for this kind of procedure, it's the patient usually then will ask, well, what does this surgery look like? What's the likelihood something will go wrong? What do you think the complication rate is with that kind of supracovicular scalene resection, first rib resection? Well, actually, uh, the the risks are of great concern, of course, because you're operating around the brachial plexus, the subclavian artery and vein. So when we discuss risks, we're always careful to outline the potential for nerve injury in particular. Uh, in reality and in practice, I think in contemporary practice, um, the risk of nerve injury by experienced surgeons is actually very, very low. In our practice, we've not had a brachial plexus injury um, for many, many years of practicing and thousands of cases now. So I think that those risks can be minimized, but we always are um, worried about that and, and do a great deal to protect the nerves during every bit of the dissection. The other risk that does come up is the potential for uh, pleural effusion or lymph leak, um, hematoma, hemothorax. Uh, those risks are below 5% overall uh, in these types of operations. Now, um, there's, there's a growing trend in our field where there are surgeons doing isolated pec minor releases, some of them open, many of them arthroscopic now. And then the argument from our side would be, well, that's a, that is a, like a zero, not zero, but very, very low risk procedure. Um, and it can be done through small incisions um, in an outpatient basis. Do you think there are patients where that's a, you could consider an isolated pec minor release? And if so, how do we identify those patients? Well, absolutely, I think there are those patients, and, and we've reported on uh, that subset of patients from our practice uh, years ago. Uh, when we first started to become interested in the pectoralis minor, um, 
we found that about 80% of patients had some degree of physical exam findings related to the pec minor in addition to the supraclavicular scaling triangle. So we found that we were doing a combined procedure very frequently. But we did find 5 to 10% of patients who were referred for neurogenic TOS had largely or completely isolated pectoralis minor findings. And those patients are great candidates for an isolated pectoralis minor tenotomy. We do that, and we tend to do it in an open manner, but I think uh, doing it arthroscopically would be perfectly reasonable in those well-selected patients. I think for patients who have tenderness on palpation, not only at the pectoralis minor, but also at the scalene triangle, they're much less likely to achieve a substantial improvement from an isolated pectoralis minor tenotomy. So one other question I want to ask you, there's another recent growing trend. You know, you mentioned an open incision above the clavicle. There's some recent trend to do the surgery thoracoscopically from inside the chest instead of from outside the chest, you know, largely by thoracic surgeons. What are there, is, would this be better or worse? Tell me, tell me your thoughts on a thoracoscopic approach. Well, yeah, that's an interesting um, development that's occurred over the last oh, five to 10 years. And I think in large part, it is very similar to a transaxillary first rib resection where you're approaching the view of the rib from below. So whether you're doing that from the axilla or from within the pleural space, uh, you're able to identify the first rib, dissect it out, and, and uh, remove a segment or perhaps even the complete first rib. I think the limitation there and the same limitation applies to transaxillary first rib resection is that you can only divide the scalene muscles. You can't really resect them. And you really can't do much of a brachial plexus neurolysis. We know that patients with neurogenic TOS have a combination of factors that affect the brachial plexus. It's not just the first rib alone. And in fact, the major cause of recurrence in patients with neurogenic TOS that have had an operation like that is reattachment of the previously divided scalene muscle that can recreate the compressive environment around the nerves uh, to be just as significant as it was originally. So because we do the supraclavicular approach, we haven't really embraced the transaxillary first rib resection or the transpleural approach, whether it's done through a VATS exposure or with a robot. Um, but that's a trend that, that uh, a number of surgeons are exploring. You know, I think one of the biggest challenges for us as shoulder surgeons are that when patients, or is that when patients come in, if if we can figure out the diagnosis, because sometimes it's difficult just based on everything you mentioned with with certain tests not being definitive for this. But at the institution, there may be a variety of different specialists who take care of this. It could be a neurosurgeon, a thoracic surgeon, of course, a vascular surgeon. And here at CU, we have orthopedic hand surgeons who have interest in brachial plexus, and they enjoy treating this. 
for our listeners who may not have all of these resources, what, what do you think is the best first stop? If a shoulder surgeon sees a patient with suspected TOS that, that has failed therapy and they're not comfortable managing it, what type of specialist should they be sending these patients to as the initial person? Well, I think that's an interesting aspect to thoracic outlet syndrome. Uh, it's considered to be relatively rare, um, but around the country, there are a number of specialists who have really focused their practices on this, and their clinical volumes are quite high. Um, but they're seeing referrals from quite a wide radius, um, if not all over the country. I think the main important thing is that the patient uh, be seen by uh, someone who is specialized with thoracic outlet syndrome and has experience in treating it, not only just surgically, but in the overall management of uh, TOS, uh, because these are complicated patients and, and they require someone with a lot of experience to manage not just the operative aspects of care, but also the other aspects of care and follow up in the long term. Um, unfortunately, it's it's quite a regionalized niche area, so there are places where there aren't many resources available. And I have to admit, uh, in our own practice, about a third of our patients travel from outside the Midwest even um, to find expertise in this uh, condition. Certainly, I mean, I I will echo what Rachel just said that it is it's it's can be very challenging to find a collaborator or a partner as a surgeon, as an orthopedic surgeon who's has an interest in this. And it's, I mean, that's, it's taken me some time at the University of Utah to find someone who also has, a, has, who also has an interest. Do you think there is any role in the future for us to be doing these cases together? I mean, one of the things that I think is super interesting about this condition is it exists on the border between a bunch of different surgeons' expertises. You know, it's on the edge of the thorax, it involves nerves, it involves blood vessels, it's on the border of the shoulder. You know, is there is this a condition we could be addressing as teams, or do you think that there's enough that you can do as one surgeon with your expertise to really address the whole thing? Well, I think from, from our practice, I've learned that it does fall between specialties, but um, vascular surgeons do tend to see the patients with venous TOS and arterial TOS because they have urgent aspects to their care, and the surgical procedures involve potentially vascular reconstructions or endovascular techniques. So they're almost always involved in the care of patients with TOS in most institutions. Um, when you get to neurogenic TOS then, some vascular surgeons are interested in treating those patients and develop expertise. Others are not really that interested in neurogenic TOS. Um, I think it is particularly valuable for the vascular surgeon who has interest in all aspects of TOS uh, to work with other specialists. Uh, that may mean uh, mainly in a diagnostic sense or in a referral pattern, but it may also mean combined operations. Um, we've, ha we've just evolved uh, our own practice over uh, three decades or so where um, the vascular surgeon does really the, the whole care, the operative care, 
Um, but we have a lot of collaboration with our other specialists who are interested and knowledgeable about TOS, but primarily as a referral pattern. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. I mean, this is, I, 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 I cannot tell you how valuable it is to have your concise description of this problem and how to diagnose it. And I, I do think that we as shoulder surgeons frequently see it in that there are times where the diagnosis is missed or it's inappropriately diagnosed in a patient that doesn't have it. Um, and so I think for that reason, it can be frustrating from our experience. And I, I, I think that the experience you've shared is going to hopefully be helpful to the surgeons listening to this podcast and taking better care of the patients that will have this. Um, so I, I really appreciate your time. This was super valuable. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I would echo what Pete said. This is incredibly valuable and helpful for all of the shoulder listeners that that are going to listen to this podcast. This is one of those things where, you know, we may not have seen it as often as we think, but it certainly has seen us. And hopefully now we'll have a better awareness of the different types of TOS and, and what to do with these patients and get them, you know, great care. So thank you very much. That is all the time we have for today's podcast. Again, we want to thank our guest, Dr. Thompson, so much for joining us and spending some time with us. And for all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.